Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. I'm your host for this program, Pastor Charles Henriksen. I'm the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bontair, Missouri. Our website is stmatthewbt.org if you're interested. And uh, this program, Concord Matters, we're walking you through the book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, what our church believes, teaches, and confesses on the basis of God's holy word. We're coming to you live on this Tuesday, October 17th. It is a beautiful, gorgeous autumn day here in St. Louis. Temperatures around 70 or so. Hope it's nice where you are. And um, uh, today on this program, we're going to be continuing in uh, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession in Article 5 on love and fulfilling the law. What do, what do our churches teach about love? What do we teach about how the law is fulfilled and how we are put right with God? And if you'd like to participate in our program today, you're certainly welcome to do so. We have a toll-free number all across North America. It is 800-730-2727. I'll repeat that, 800-730-2727. And locally here in St. Louis, the phone number is area code 314 314- 821-0850. Again, 314-821-0850. And if you'd like to email us with your comment or question, you may do so. The email address is kfuo at kfuo.org. In the studio today are two guests we've had on this program before, and we welcome them here today. First of all, I want to introduce uh, Professor Pastor uh, Tom Egger. He is a professor. Uh, He teaches at uh, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, primarily in the area of the Old Testament. Welcome back, Tom. Good to be here, Charlie. And what are you teaching right now at the SEM? Well, we're in our fall semester, and I've been teaching a course on the Torah of Moses. Explain what the Torah is. Well, it's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, this course focuses on Exodus, but tries to give an overview of the theology of those first five books. And uh, have also been teaching a course on Psalms and spiritual care. Very good, very good. And then uh, seated right next to him is uh, another guest who's been on this program before, and that is Pastor Steve Reardon. He is the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Wildwood, Missouri. Welcome, Steve. Thanks. Good to be here. What are you doing this month for anything in the way of celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? Oh, that's coming up, right? Yeah, it it? is. Yeah, gosh, right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, bigger service, choir pieces, instrumentals, things like that. You know, just kind of building it up a little bit amongst the members of the congregation. And uh, where can people find out more about St. Paul and Wildwood? You can go to our website, St. Paul's Wildwood dash, I'm sorry, St. Paul's Lutheran dash Wildwood.com. Say that again. St. Paul's Lutheran-Wildwood.com. Good. And what is your Sunday morning schedule? Uh, Sunday worship is at 9 o'clock, followed by a time of fellowship, and then Bible study at 1030. Very good. 
We're glad to have you both here on the program. And we, again, invite your participation. We're in the Apology the Augsburg Confession, which is not, we're sorry we wrote the Augsburg Confession, of course. It's the defense of the Augsburg Confession of 1530 uh, after the Roman Catholic Church uh, condemned the Lutheran teaching and in their confutation. And so uh, the Lutherans came back with what we call an apologia, an apology, a defense of the Augsburg Confession. The penman, the author, was a man by the name of Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, Luther's right-hand man. And it reflects Luther's teaching also throughout and what our churches still today believe, teach, and confess. So uh, Melanchthon here, who is a very knowledgeable uh, theologian and scholar has been taking up the Roman arguments, uh, his at the adversaries as they're called, response to the adversaries or the opponents' arguments uh, that they have raised against the Lutheran teaching on justification, that we are pronounced righteous before God by grace through faith in Christ apart from works of the law. Uh, where Luther got that idea was from the writings of St. Paul in uh, Romans in particular, and in Galatians. And so the Lutherans are saying it's not by uh, the piling up of our works that we merit uh, righteousness from God, but rather that it is a free gift. And so Melanchthon here is taking on their ideas and uh, showing them on the basis of Scripture and even from the Church Fathers how what we are teaching is nothing new or strange, but is really the the one teaching that uh, God has had uh, from the beginning. All right, so that's the context. Uh, we Our program last week left off. We're in the reader's edition of the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord. We're going to pick it up at paragraph 190 in Article 5, Love and the Fulfilling of the Law. And just a little context here. In the paragraphs right before this, uh, Melanchthon has been saying, he's been quoting some verses from Romans, for example, that uh, about faith in the promises. He's emphasizing the necessity of faith in order to do works of love. And for example, in paragraph 189, he had said, so the worship and divine service of the gospel is to receive gifts from God. On the contrary, the worship of the law is to offer and present our gifts to God. And so he's going to make this distinction between the law and the gospel, and we're going to get into that in a moment. And then further in paragraph 189, he said, The chief worship of the gospel is to desire to receive the forgiveness of sins, grace, and righteousness. Steve or Tom, anything before we get into our new material that you want to say to give it a little background or context? I don't really have anything to say. Well, let's launch in. Well, let's launch into it. Paragraph 190. The adversaries, there he's speaking of the Roman Catholic theologians, the adversaries speak of obedience to the law, but they do not speak of obedience to the gospel. Tom Egger, can you explain this this distinction between obedience? What, is, what does it mean they teach the obedience of the law, but don't speak of the obedience to the gospel? What's this word obedience, and how is it being understood? Yeah, it's, it, it oftentimes sounds strange to our ears to talk about obedience to the gospel because the gospel is uh, a leaning on Christ and a receiving the good news of what Christ has done for us apart from our own works, apart from our own obedience. So it's being used in a sense in a, in a kind of a metaphorical way, but obedience to the gospel is another way of saying faith in the gospel, receiving yeah. the 
receiving the good news of God and saying amen to what uh, hearing what God says and then responding in the appropriate way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think of a passage in John chapter five and John chapter six. I'm trying to find it right now. uh, That Jesus says, "You search the scriptures, uh, thinking that by these you yeah." Here it is, John five verse thirty. He says to his opponents, Jesus does, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So his opponents were thinking it was their obedience to the law as they imagined it that would give them life. But Jesus says it's really faith in me that gives you life. Precisely. Yeah. And then in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, um, or they're asking, what is the work uh, that we must do to uh, have eternal life. And yeah. I'm trying to find that passage. That's a great passage. Where is that again? Well, um, his, his response is, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Yeah, here it is. In John 6, verse 28, they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? See, and they're thinking about the obedience of the law. Mm-hmm. He answers, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And that would be the obedience of the gospel, to believe the promise. Steve Erden, you want to add anything on that? The distinction between obedience to the law and obedience to the gospel. I mean, this is going to sound obvious, but I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, it is is confusing language, I think. You know, it's one of those things that comes up in Bible class fairly often with your lay people. They'll look at that and be like, okay, now wait a minute, how do you fit this obedience thing in? You know, but but I do think the explanation of it's analogous to faith. Yeah. You know, that it's the response to the gospel call. Yeah, to hearken to the voice of the Lord. Right. To listen to what he says and then believe and act and trust Mm -hmm. and do accordingly. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, but the opponents were only emphasizing what they imagined to be the obedience to the law, that this was the way you get in. Well, right, and the outward obedience to the law. Yeah, yeah, and even tacking on their own their own self-chosen works. Mm-hmm. All right, continuing on in paragraph 190, we cannot obey the law unless we have been born again through the gospel. We cannot love God unless we have received the forgiveness of sins. For as long as we feel that he is angry with us, our human nature runs away from his anger and judgment. Uh, Pastor Reardon, um, did, can you think of the life experience of Martin Luther himself in this regard? Oh, sure. I mean, he was tormented with the idea of having to be obedient you know, to the law and always falling short, which, of course, we're all going to do um, because we can never obey the law perfectly. You know, that, that was what agonized Luther. Because he actually took it seriously. You know, I think that most people look at their inability to keep the law and they just kind of go with it and say, well, you know, as long as I do the best that I can, God will grade me on a curve. You know, Luther took it seriously. Yeah. I think uh, this where it says we cannot love God unless we've received the forgiveness of sins. As long as we feel that he's angry with us, our human nature runs away from his anger and judgment. I remember the 1953 movie about Martin Luther. We saw it every year at October at Lutheran grade school in Chicago. They bring in the big real projector. And there was this one scene, Luther's in the courtyard with uh, uh, von Staupitz, right? His mentor. And um, he says, do you want to confess your sins? And he says, yes. And, uh, but here's my sin. I, and I, I, I've confessed all these other things, but I, there's this one sin 
that I cannot be forgiven for, I don't love God. Hmm. Pastor Edgar, why, why would Luther think he cannot love God, and how does that fit into what we're seeing here in this passage? Yeah, it's, it's, an, interesting, uh, it's an interesting couple of sentences there. It's, it definitely sounds more like Luther than Melanchthon yeah, speaking yeah. here, and he seems to be channeling Luther's experience and Luther's own way of articulating the gospel. Uh, what a sweet thing it is to come to know God in his mercy in Christ and to know that welcome and the love that that then engenders in our hearts. And uh, yeah, Luther would often, uh, he would often talk about how the main image of Christ, which had always been set before his eyes, was the picture of a stern Christ sitting on a throne of judgment with a rainbow over his head, ready to, yeah, ready to ready to judge the wicked, which clearly is a scriptural yes. picture of Christ. But it's not the whole picture. But it's not the whole picture, and uh, and I think uh, I, I suppose you might say that we've uh, we've lost that picture of I think Christ we've swung in the, the church pendulum today. The other side, uh, absolutely. But but uh, that that being what it may it still is a very sweet reality and a biblical reality, a God-given reality that Jesus came not merely uh, sitting on a throne in judgment, but he came to gather the lost sheep of God. And so some of the beautiful images that we have as part of our piety of taken from the scripture, Jesus is the good shepherd with the sheep gathered around him and the sheep over his shoulders taking it home, or Jesus with children gathered around him, welcoming them uh, near to him. Those are the kind of pictures, those are gospel pictures, and most importantly of all, Jesus hanging on the cross, uh, giving his life for sinners. And uh, that beautiful picture of God's love, those are the kinds of images that bring forth love uh, from humanity. And until we know the gospel God mm-hmm. in Christ, um, we're going to run away from it him. It is hard to love yeah. him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's ironic that Luther was struggling with law and gospel before he realized it was law and gospel. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, he was becoming a Lutheran. Yeah, he was, he was, in, yeah he, was, he was developing into a Lutheran. John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the gospel. And Jesus came not to be primarily another Moses, a lawgiver, but uh, to be our Savior. Yes. And, and that draws us to Christ and to God. All right. Going on. In paragraph 191, uh, if anyone should object that this view of faith, which Melanchthon's been presenting, if anyone should object that this view of faith which desires those things offered by the promise, becomes confused with hope, we answer as follows. Hope expects promised things, and hope and faith cannot be separated in reality. Such needless debate takes place in the schools. The epistle to the Hebrews defines faith as the assurance expectatio of things hoped for, Hebrews 11 verse 1. Yet if anyone wants a distinction between faith and hope, We said that the object of hope is properly a future event, but that faith is concerned with future and present things. Faith faith receives the forgiveness of sins offered in the promise in the present. What's this uh, bantering about hope and faith and the distinction thereof here that is being uh, brought up? 
Well, I mean, I, I, have, I have to admit that I'm, I have not read the confutation and exactly yeah. what they were saying, you know, but, uh, you know, apparently what Melanchthon is talking about is that they put some sort of distinction between the two. And really, you know, they, they made it kind of an either or sort of a situation. And Melanchthon is cutting it back to a both and, yeah. you know, faith and hope go hand in hand together, you know, and if and again, I did, I did like the distinction that he makes that if it. If there is a distinction to make, is that one looks forward mm-hmm. pretty much completely to the future, while faith is something that affects yeah. us in the present now. Hope yeah. that is seen as no longer hope. Right. So right now we have faith and we have hope, but then when that materializes, then there's no more need. Then it's just going to be love. Right. But I've always explained hope as faith projected into the future. Uh, yeah. Faith is faith is the larger category, and hope is more narrowly the object in the future that we're looking forward to. And, and Melanchthon acknowledges that there is there is a lot of overlap between the two things. They both cling to God's promises. Exactly. Right. Clinging to the promise, right. All right. Going on, paragraph 192. From these statements, we hope that it is clear both what faith is and that we are justified, reconciled, and regenerated through faith. Whoa. We got some 75-cent words here. Uh Justified, reconciled, and regenerated. Let's uh, uh, give a little brief definition of each of these terms. Uh, Pastor Reardon, what does it mean to be justified? I mean, kind of simply put, made right. You know, um, if you think about it in terms of, you know, your word processor and you justify your paragraphs, everything is lined up. Everything is in order. Yeah. You know, so we are made right before God. Pronounced, Pronounced righteous. Right. Yeah. Like in a courtroom where right. you're said not guilty. That's justice. Uh, that's you're being justified. And what about reconciled, Pastor Egger? Well, reconciled is a relational term. If justified is kind of a legal term, reconciled has to do with with our our standing before God and uh, being being uh, brought back into a relationship with God. Uh, the gap has closed. The gap has closed. The estrangement is over. And then, what about regenerated? Either one of you, Steve. The- being reborn. I mean, it's, it's the language of birth, you yeah. know, a new birth, a new man. I remember I took a course at the seminary called Justification by Faith, taught by uh, Jack Preuss. And um, I was his graduate research assistant when he was working on a book called Just Words. And this was exactly the kind of premise of the book. We can talk about the doctrine of justification by using different metaphors or images from the Bible, teaching the same doctrine, but with a legal background or a transactional background or a birth background. And I found that that was very helpful for my understanding of the scriptures and for my preaching and teaching as well. Mm-hmm. Right. The language of salvation that you see in the, in the Bible is rich, yeah. you know, and I mean, I, I, this sounds somewhat cliche, but it's like a diamond. There's all sorts of facets to it, you know, and lots of ways to describe it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it can be, you know, legal, you know, the, the language of jurisprudence, you know, or it can be commerce, mm-hmm. you know. Redeemed. It, redeemed, right. Set free by a purchase. Yes. Yeah, there's there's so much that Jesus has done for us and won for us. And faith clings to Christ and receives all of those benefits. And so here's three ways of talking about those benefits to be given righteousness before God, justified, to be brought back into relationship with the Reborn. Father, reconciled, and to be given new life. Yeah. Uh, regeneration, and we could add many other descriptions to the list, but all of it comes to us in Christ simply by faith as we cling to him and all that he's done for us and gives to us. Very good. Going on in paragraph 192, 
We are compelled to hold on to these teachings because we want to teach the righteousness of the gospel, not the righteousness of the law. I think we've already covered that, that it's not, you're not pronounced not guilty before God, righteous before God on the basis of your works, but rather on the basis of what Christ's works are in which you are trusting. For those who teach that we are justified by love, teach the righteousness of the law. Whoa, boys, I thought love was a good word, a nice word, a warm and fuzzy word. How can this be teaching the righteousness of the law? That sounds rather cold. It does. I think this is something that people get confused about all the time, you know, because you see quite often the scripture quote the command to love, Yeah. you know, and they treat it as gospel and it's not, you know, I mean, it's law, you know, and if you think about it, what is fulfillment of the law? You know, it, we say it's love. What's the fulfillment of the first table of the law? Love, love the Lord, Lord your God. God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, that's works. Yeah. So, Tom, you teach the Torah, and in the in another meaning of the word Torah, it is instruction. We sometimes say the law. Sometimes we feel, ooh, the law is bad or something like that. There's nothing wrong with the law, yeah, is there? The law simply can be boiled down to the word, finally, love. Yeah. And... It's a be- it's a beautiful thing, and it should be a it should be to us always sweet news to hear God encouraging love, and yet um, it's a testimony to just how darkened and fallen humanity has become right. uh, since our first parents fell into sin. The problem with the command to love is not that it's not a beautiful command; it's God's design for it, human it's creatures. It's absolutely God's will uh, for us and our relationship with Him and one another but our hearts are broken and we are not good lovers. We do not love God well. We do not love one another well. We are pretty good at loving ourselves. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, but uh, if we have to stand before the eternal judgment of God on the basis of how well we have loved, that might sound like a nice standard, but we're all doomed. We're gonna fail the test. Yeah, I mean, we, we are by nature selfish people. You know, we, we will watch out for number one, meaning me. Curved in on oneself. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So so the law is a good thing. The problem is we don't do it as we should. All right, we're going to come up on a break here in a couple of minutes here. Let's go on a little further. And again, if you want to uh, join in our program, the phone number is area code, uh, I mean, sorry, first the toll-free number, 800-730-2727. And locally, area code 314-821-0850. You can also email us at kfuo at kfuo.org. All right, going on. Um, They do not teach us in justification to trust in Christ as mediator. The opponents do not. These things are also clear. We overcome the terrors of sin and death not through love, meaning our own love, but through faith. For we cannot set up our love and fulfilling of the law against God's wrath, because Paul says, through Christ we have also obtained access to God by faith. Romans 5, verse 2. We often emphasize this sentence so that we are understood. The sentence shows most clearly uh, our whole argument and, when carefully considered, can teach abundantly about the whole matter. It can console good minds. So it is helpful to have it at hand and in sight that we may be able to set it against the doctrine of our adversaries. They teach that we come to God not through faith, but through love and merits without Christ as mediator. And so he's referring to this sentence here, through Christ we have obtained access to God by faith. 
Let me just finish out this paragraph. This sentence also helps us when we fear so that we may cheer ourselves and exercise faith. This is also clear. We cannot keep the law without Christ's aid. He himself says, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, verse 5. So before we keep the law, our hearts must be born again through faith. We'll come back to this after this break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO, the messenger of good news. Concordia University, Wisconsin and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message and pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news, AM850 in St. Louis, worldwide at kfuo.org. Respected Oxford professor and preacher, John Wycliffe, believed every Christian should have access to the Bible. The common people of England know the teaching and life of Jesus best in their mother tongue. His followers began a translation of the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible in the 1380s and gave English-speaking people a Bible. Wycliffe died in 1384, but in 1407, the archbishop declared... Anyone reading this English text in public or in private is to be excommunicated. Wycliffe's influence endured. Four decades after his death, his body was exhumed and his bones were ordered to be burned in a field of execution. John Wycliffe helped set the stage for the Protestant Reformation and the translation of the Bible into the language of the people. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible, opening in November in Washington, D.C. We 
are back on KFUO uh, with Concord Matters here on this program. By the way, I want to welcome our board op, Stephanie. Uh, she's our new board op. Uh, we remember the late Mark Stevens, who was a board op here for a number of our programs. Well, we're glad to have Stephanie with us, spinning the dials. All right. We left off in paragraph uh, 194 of Article 5, Love and the Fulfilling of the Law. And uh, I, I didn't want to blow right by this, these last couple sentences, where Melanchthon says, We cannot keep the law without Christ's aid. He himself says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, before we keep the law, our hearts must be born again through faith. Are Lutherans against keeping the law? Do we think that we cannot keep the law? Do we? Do, um, what are Lutherans against the idea that we should keep the law? No, of course not. You know, what's What's the point that Melanchthon's making? Well, I mean, the, the point that he's making is that we are incapable as sinners of keeping the law. In, in the purest sense of the word. Now, we can do a lot externally. Yeah. You know, um, I can have somebody cut me off in traffic, and I can bite my tongue, and I can not yell at the person, you know, or make any sort of obscene gesture toward them. Mm -hmm. But inside, I'm fuming. You know, and so if you consider what sin is, thought, word, and deed, and any one of those three categories there is a violation of the law, you're never going to be able to keep the law. You know, just It's just not part of who we are because of our sinful nature. So just according to our sinful nature, we don't keep the law. But I think he's not saying that Christians shouldn't think they can, all these negatives here. He's not saying that Christians are incapable of keeping the law, but what's the point he's making? Well, our, our standing before God can't be determined by our perfection in keeping the law. Uh, or our merit in keeping the law, because uh, it's only by Christ's help and aid that we're able to even make a true beginning. Yeah, a at, beginning of keeping at, the law. At fulfilling the law. And he says that the first thing is, let's let's not put the cart before the horse. Sure, we're in favor of love and good works and keeping the law. Right. But first, you need to have faith in Christ and be born again and be a Christian. Right. And this is, I mean, and this is explicitly stated in Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, you know, where he says, you know, that it is impossible to please God okay. apart from faith. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's not like Lutherans sometimes are characterized as uh, caricatured as well. I guess you guys just can do whatever you want and don't bother to keep the commandments because you can just get forgiven and uh, forget about good works. That's not the real Lutheran position. Yeah, St. Paul's response to that attitude is, may it never be, right? Yeah, By right. no means. Right, Romans 5, Romans 6, right in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Melanchthon's not denying that we should keep the law as Christians. He's just saying, let's not put the cart before the horse. First comes faith, then come the works, rather than works just, and then you get, you know, is putting things out of order and in the wrong place. All right. Now we move into another section, Results of the Adversary's Teaching, paragraph 195. It is clear why we find fault with the adversary's doctrine about good works, rewarded because of God's generosity, and then in the parenthesis here, it has a Latin phrase, meritum condigni. The decision is very easy. All right, so this meritum condigni, or condign merit, here we're getting thick into the jungle of uh, medieval Roman Catholic theology, what is called scholasticism. 
and they propose some some ideas about merit. You can hear the word merit and meritum, and then condigni. So they made a couple of distinctions in their in their fine tuning of what they imagined uh, between condign merit and there was another type of merit called congruent merit. We'll get into this later, but um, what's the faulty premise in these matters of meritum condigni and meritum congruo, Professor Egger? Well, uh, as you said, uh, regardless of how you parse the nature of the merit, uh, how it came about to be accomplished, um, the problem with with this way of looking at things is that it says that the sinner standing before God or the human being standing before God can merit God's favor and even salvation through something in themselves. And uh, as Melanchthon is going to go on to explain in this section, this has real implications for the nature of of the hope or the confidence that it instills in a person. Is my hope and confidence going to be in my own works, however they came to be performed with however much help from God and however much uh, um, kind of, uh, um, uh, well, frankly, grading on a curve or however much uh, ease with which he examines my record, um, is my confidence in myself and my works or is my confidence outside of myself in Christ on the basis of faith? And, uh, these uh, different categories of merit don't point apart, uh, don't don't point away from the person towards Christ, but always continue to point them towards themselves for confidence. Yeah. Well, it's really putting yourself under the burden of the law in the worst sort of a way, because first of all, how do you know which one of your works is a good one versus one that is tainted a little bit with sin? You know, I mean, I guess I would argue the fact that probably all of our works are tainted, you know, in some way, shape or form. Yeah, and, and it just takes away any comfort that you have in calling Jesus a Savior. Mm-hmm. And he'll make another point here about what this does to Christ uh, and his glory that he deserves. All right, so he's talking here about the adversary's doctrine about works rewarded because of God's generosity as a merit that the person has uh, attained with God and that God's rewarding uh, your merit uh, with uh, some some benefit here. All right, so first point here is in paragraphs 195 through 197, and we'll read this. First, the adversaries do not even mention faith, that we please God through faith for Christ's sake. Rather, they imagine that good works, worked by the aid of the habit of love, make a righteousness worthy to please God by itself, and also worthy of eternal life. So they have no need of Christ as mediator. What else is this than to transfer Christ's glory to our works? It means we would please God because of our works, not because of Christ. But this robs Christ of the glory of being the mediator. He is the mediator forever and not merely in the beginning of justification. Let me pause there. So he's saying that that if it's a matter of our merit that God rewards— uh, because of our habit of love, this sort of habitus, this uh, steady pattern we have of loving, uh, then we're really displacing Christ as the mediator. What does it mean that Christ is our mediator? Which well, 
Go for it. <laughs> only, only because of Christ can we stand before God. So he's, he mediates between us and God. He brings us to the Father. He makes us acceptable to the Father. Um, he is the necessary mediator. And I love that last sentence that you read. I, I have uh, three stars beside it in the I've mar- got it in highlighted in mine. My, uh, <laughs> he is the mediator forever and not merely in the beginning of justification. What is he talking about there? Not merely in the beginning of justification. He's saying, I think that the opponents would grant that Christ is the mediator in the beginning of justification, mm-hmm. but what's the other shoe that is about to drop there? Well, you know, in Roman Catholic theology, and, and putting this, simplifying this as much as possible here, but, um, you know, the belief is kind of that Christ is your savior or mediator who gets you going, mm-hmm. you know, um, but then it is up to you to complete your salvation through works. You know, and this habit of love. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah, and obviously, the, you know, one of the points that, you know, Melanchthon is making here is that this actually takes the glory away from Christ, which it really does. Um, because if you add anything to the saving work of Christ, you're actually subtracting from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's just kind of mathematical. Yeah. You know, if he is 100% savior, and then I say, well, but I need to add 2% works, I am no longer saying that he is 100% savior. And you can count on Jesus, but I don't know if I can count on myself. Right. I don't so know if I can least... count on you either, Charlie. You know, so. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> this th- this language, Charlie, of uh, the the mediator forever and not merely in the beginning. Um, he certainly was responding to the Roman Catholic theology of his day, but I think it's also very applicable to a lot of tendencies in contemporary Christianity. Please in explain. Which, um, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, is seen to be a message that people outside the church need to hear. So we, we evangelize and we tell people that they're sinners and that they need the, the work that Jesus has done for them. But then once they're inside the churches, sometimes the thought is what they really need now is encouragement to live the Christian life and encouragement to do things for Jesus, which is both of those things are true. We should There's be encouraged a along, along those lines. Uh, but every day of my life, I stand in need of Christ's mediation, and there never comes a point in my Christian life. It's not just that he gets me in the door with the Father or in the door of the church, and now uh, now the Christian life is about what I must do. Every day I need his mercy and forgiveness and can only stand before God because of him until the day I die and, and when I stand in the judgment. That's a wonderful pastoral point there. Yeah, I know. I can't go a week without realizing I need forgiveness. Right, I can't right. go a day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of a, one of the things about being Lutheran is that we advance by going backwards. You know, we, we, we advance in our faith when we fall back again in repentance and seek out the forgiveness that comes through Christ and his cross. You know, that, that that's advancement in faith, mm-hmm. you know. And I think, you know, a great point, you know, or, or something to go along with what you were saying there is a great book, you know, I'm sure you guys have read it, The Defense Never Rest, Craig Parton. I've not read it. I've heard oh, okay. good things about it. If you read, if you read his, stor- his story or you know, his testimony, so to speak, um, he talks exactly about that, that, you know, coming to faith through what was then Campus Crusades for Christ. Mm-hmm. I think they call themselves crew now. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming to faith in, in college you know, through them, and then immediately moving off of the gospel, moving away from the gospel, and it all became a matter of, now let's get on with what your real Christian life is all about. And you leave Jesus back, you know, at the door. Yeah, the gospel assumed 
which right. is really the gospel denied. Yes, yes. Say, okay, you've heard that stuff about Jesus, but now let's get on to the important stuff. Yeah, kind of like the Judaizers of the first century. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, and sadly, I think that that's rampant that is out there in so much of, you know, evangelical America. Um, anecdotally, my daughter dated a guy who was a son was a God and she would occasionally go, you know, to his church. And she said they spent their whole time talking around Jesus and never getting to Jesus, you know, but it all becomes just a focus in on you and what you're mm-hmm. supposed to go out and do. So yeah, it's out there. Yeah. All right. So we're in uh, paragraph 196 and continuing there. Paul also says that if one justified in Christ seeks righteousness elsewhere, he affirms that Christ is a minister of sin, Galatians 2.17. That is, that he does not fully justify. What the adversaries teach is most silly. There it is, Steve Reardon. You said that this was their distinctions were kind of silly. There, Melanchthon says it as well. They teach that good works merit grace because of God's mercy, de condigno. They mean that after the beginning of justification... If conscience is terrified, which happens, grace must be sought through a good work and not through faith in Christ. So they're looking in the wrong place there. I mean, I can't imagine anything less comforting than looking at myself. I mean, honestly, you know, you were saying before that, you know, you don't know if you're capable of doing a good work. You know, I I mean, sometimes you wonder, you know, because, again, everything that we do tends to be tainted in some way. You know, so there, I can't imagine at all finding any comfort, mm-hmm. you know, and feeling the need to go out and do a good work to make up for something. At, at the same time, it is kind of reasonable, this approach, right? And, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's what Melanchthon has been accusing uh, the opponents about in this controversy. He's been saying you're, you're looking to the law for hope and you're looking to human reason for hope. And there is something reasonable about if you've done something wrong, what are you going to do to take care of things? Well, go do something right, right? And uh, and it's maybe there's a certain satisfaction in the human heart of thinking that, oh, maybe I can rectify this myself. Maybe I can uh, take care of this issue before God if I've failed and fallen under his judgment and aroused his wrath. Well, maybe, you know, what, what are action steps I can take to take care of this problem? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's, maybe it's doing some good works. So yeah. there's something about the way we're wired, I think, that makes that sound attractive. But if the conscience is truly terrified, like you said, um, there's not going to be pe- true peace found in, in our own good yeah, works at yeah. all. Yeah, and it can be very subtle because... The Bible and uh, Paul's epistles and Jesus do exhort Christians to good works, except not to look there for assurance of your righteousness. I mean, you should be examining your life and you should bear fruits fit, fit for repentance, but that's not the basis for your comfort. Your basis for your comfort is in the promises of God in Christ. Right. Okay. Second, paragraph 198. The doctrine of the adversaries leave, leaves consciences in doubt, as you were saying, so that they never can be quieted. This is so because the law always accuses us, even in good works. And there we know the Latin phrase, lex semper accusat. The law always accuses, even in good works. How can the law accuse us even when I do a good work? Either one of you want to take that on. Well, yeah, I mean... I. 
if I, it, okay, stumbling here a little bit. When, when you consider again the nature of who we are, you know, all, all being kind of Roman seven people, you know, the, the things I want to do, these are the things I the don't do. The struggle between the new man between and the, the old man. Right, exactly. You know, that, that struggle doesn't go away this side of heaven, you know, and we are always going to have that struggle, you know. And so when I hear the law, even if somebody means it, you know, in the catechetical sense as a third use, that is a guide for me as a Christian, it still is a reminder to me of all those times that I have not done it correctly. You know, I'm always reminded of that, you know, that, that there's something that I'm not doing perfectly under the law. So it will always accuse me, you know, no matter what the, the, the sense of the law is as it's being presented to me. Now, even yeah. if I do a good work, let's say I preach a, a good theologically sound sermon and people are benefited by it. They've heard the voice of Christ in it. If I really look through my motives, my internal motives, even in doing that good work, I could probably detect, if I'm honest with myself, oh, you just said that so that people would laugh at your joke, or they'd be impressed with your skills, and oh, you're happy when they compliment you on your sermon. Do you ever experience that, either of you? Absolutely. Go ahead, Tom. Uh, well, just the precisely the things you said. It's something I think that... that uh, haunts every pastor to some extent. Here you're doing this holy work. Uh, and it may and, be a perfectly and, good work. And, and you're sent- I mean, not perfectly, but I mean, yeah. it's an, a work that actually uh, is according to your calling and is benefiting people. Absolutely. It's God's own work. And yet God's work through you is always haunted and tainted by your own ego and your Self own- Self-serving. Y- your own, yeah, your own, uh, yeah. Uh, p- pastors- uh, Pastors labor for a paycheck, yeah. right? I was just thinking uh, and, the same thing. Well, maybe they'll give me a raise this year. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, it, in our in our best moments, those aren't things that motivate us at all. Yeah, uh, but all of our moments aren't our best moments because we're sinners. Yeah. So what Melanchthon's saying is, even when we're doing good works, which are covered in Christ's forgiveness and accepted. You know, if they proceed from faith in Christ and according to God's commandments and are out of love for God and love our neighbor, they can still have this little uh, impurity of our selfishness in there, Pastor Reardon. Yeah, I mean, you can you can recall all sorts of anecdotes in your life where stuff like that happens. You know, years ago, I was going at a at carnival at a church in the town that where I had a church in, um, and there was a man with a flat tire. You know, I went ahead and I changed it for him. He was struggling with it, so I went ahead and I changed it, you know, and he offered me a 20 when I got done. And I said, I, you know, don't want your money, you know, and he kept insisting. And I said, I'll tell you what, I said, go to church on Sunday, drop in the collection plate, you know? And so he said he would do that. So I'm walking away and what do I do? I said, I think that was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> look you know, how noble look I was. Look how noble I was. Yeah, exactly. My struggle in those instances is the burning desire inside to tell just Somebody. at least at least one or two people oh, what I right. you know yeah, kind of yeah, right. kind of casually let the story <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah I was at uh, yeah. yeah right right yeah 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 I mean so you do, you do what would ostensibly be a good work and then you see how you corrupt it within three steps away from the man you well, know I'm glad you guys are saying this because I thought I was the only person that sinful to have those kinds of thoughts <laughs> nope <laughs> all right um, yeah. For always the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, Galatians 5.17. How will an unbelieving conscience have peace if it believes that for the sake of one's own work, I got to get this in the 
light now. For the sake of one's own work, it ought now to please God and not for Christ's sake. What work will it find? What will it trust as worthy of eternal life if, indeed, hope begins from merits? Against these doubts, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, Romans 5, verse 1. We should be firmly convinced that we are granted righteousness and eternal life for Christ's sake. He says about Abraham, in hope he believed against hope. So emphasizing the need for faith here, that if it's relying on our works, we will, uh, our consciences will be in doubt. You know, I think of this saying, where, how does it go? Um, the law says, do this, and it is never done. The gospel says, believe this, and it is done already. Yeah. So um, if we're going to look to the law and our works, is it enough? Have I done enough? We'll never be satisfied on that account. Yeah. The, the, the pastoral concern of Melanchthon here, um, who himself was not a pastor, interestingly, but this theology grows out of a, a struggling heart before God and coming to love the gospel. But this, this concern to take care of troubled, weak, struggling consciences, um, that the recognition that, that, um, the good news of Jesus and the welcome and the, and the, the accomplished salvation of Jesus is, is precisely for the weakest and the, and the most hurting and the most troubled. And so he sets up these two principles. He, he's going to give four different uh, points as he goes through here, but really it's just two things that he keeps coming back to the full glory of Christ and salvation. Don't take away the glory that is due to Jesus because he's born it all and done it all for us. And secondly, don't rob troubled consciences of the full peace that Jesus has won for them. Yeah, That's the heart of this article. That's really the heart of the entire um, Lutheran confessions. That's yes. the heart of Christianity, those if, two things. If you read the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, the whole thing, there is, as you were saying, this twofold refrain that Melanchthon repeats over and over and over again that our teaching gives all glory to Christ, the mediator, and gives true peace and comfort to terrified consciences. And uh, that's absolutely true. And he makes this point over and over and over again. All right, I think we might have time for one more point here. Uh, paragraph 200. How will a conscience know when a work was done by the inclination of this habit of love so that it is possible to conclude that the work merits grace in a holy, deserving way, de condigno, this merit idea? This very distinction has been created to dodge the scriptures. It teaches that people merit grace at one time in a merely agreeable way, de congruo, and at another time in a holy, deserving way, uh, de condigno. Let's talk about those again. I remember these terms coming up as we studied medieval Roman Catholic theology, scholasticism at the seminary uh, many years ago. And these terms are, I recall, meritum condigno and meritum congruo. And it seems like, and this was kind of an artificial scholastic uh, uh, distinction here that really, as we said before the program, is really a bunch of poppycock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you right. know, because they're both putting the merit in us. But the, 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 the scholastic theologians distinguish between a um, 
congruent merit and a condign merit. And apparently the congruent merit was sort of a, a merely agreeable way. You're doing something uh, according to God's law to merit grace, but uh, maybe with not the highest intentions. But the meritum condign, the condign merit was God rewards you with merit, uh, your merit because of a better motivation or intention. Is that kind of how you're understanding that? Yeah, I mean, that's my understanding of it. It's like it's some, some some good works are just kind of, yeah, they're okay. You know, they're good works. And other ones really count, you know, and those are the ones that God gives you credit for. You know, it's those ones that are motivated purely or uh, that come out of that pure habit of love. But again, it gets down to how do you measure it? You know, and that that's where the conscience can be troubled by this and never comforted. Is it? How do you measure it? You know, when's enough? How much yeah. love is enough? Yeah. That, were you really loving enough? Yeah. Let's finish this paragraph. As we have said above, the intention of the one who works does not matter. See, that gets into the intentionality of your work. Hypocrites in their security simply think their works are worthy and that they are regarded righteous. On the other hand, terrified consciences have doubts about all works and for this reason continually seek other works. For this is what it means to merit, quote, in a merely agreeable way, de congruo, it means to doubt and without faith to work until despair takes place. In short, all that the adversaries teach about this matter is full of errors and dangers. And really, that's what this Reformation that we're celebrating is all about. Uh, 500 years ago, later this month, uh, Luther got the ball rolling here uh, with uh, uh, denouncing and, and exposing false ways that people think they can be righteous before God. Any closing thoughts before we uh, take off the for the day? I mean, what I think, just a closing thought is, where are you going to put your focus? In flawed human beings, meaning yourself, and any sort of merit that you deserve, or in the merits of Christ and what he's done for us? Yeah. Tom? Yeah, that's a great summary. And uh, doctrine matters. Uh, it matters in the human heart, and it matters for this reason um, above all. Does, it, does doctrine point you to Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, or does doctrine enslave you, in a sense, to yourself and your own weakness? Reformation, it's still all about Jesus. Thank you for joining us today on Concord Matters. You've been listening to this program on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Mm -hmm.